it's good to see you today. I hope you're doing well. Thank you for being here or joining us online today. We're thankful and we pray that you are well and those you love are well as well. We uh, certainly want to be praying for those uh, in our congregation and in our community who are dealing with COVID. There are many. And so let's keep those folks in our prayers. We're going to continue in, our book, in the book of Judges today in our study here. We are nearing the end. There are three chapters left. And really, these three chapters are really one story, one unit, one section. And so we're going to split those up by chapter and look and see what is there. And remember, this entire time, this entire series, we've been holding up the book of Judges and the Bible particularly as a mirror for us to look into so that we can see what needs to be changed in you and me, in us, in Christians, in the people of God. We need God to move in our hearts, in our lives every day, not just into the world. We can't just look out and say, they need to change. This needs to change. That needs to change. If only this would happen. If only, uh, you know, these people could be in office. If only this could take place, then it would all be better. And, you know, we can look at that and it will make us very upset and angry people because it's always going to be out of control. Always. I was talking with my kids this week, and I can't remember the context of the conversation, but I knew, I do know that we were thinking about, well, why can't that person treat me better? Or why can't that? It was kind of one of those conversations, which aren't fun. You don't like for your kids to be upset or hurt in any way, do we? But I remember telling uh, whoever it was, whichever child it was, that, honey, you cannot control that person. You can't control another person. But you can control you. You can work on you. You can make you better. You can do something in your life and worry about yourself. If all you're worried about is all the other people and what they think, you will always be miserable. And that's the thing about us. If we are always worried about everything else and everybody else and every situation that the world is in right now, we will be miserable. And so let us look into the Word of God today and say, Lord, what needs to change in me? What do you need to do in my life? What needs to be different in me? And Lord, I know you can control that. The question today that we want to start with as we kind of look at this passage of Scripture and to determine what it is here that we need to take uh, for ourselves and understand for our lives is this. Here's the question. What happens... When God's people become their own worst enemy. What happens when God's people become their own worst enemy? That's what has happened. And we, and we shouldn't be surprised. We have seen the downward spiral and the entire time we've been in the book of Judges looking at what's happening to the nation as its leaders uh, don't even lead out of a heart for God, but lead uh, out of their own demise and their own desires and their own ways. And what we must understand about us and our own selves and our own lives is that left to our own devices... We will mess this up. 
left to Derek and what he wants to do for his own life, left to that selfishness, left to that selfish desire that's in each and every one of us, that sin nature that's in us, leading uh, that left to those things in our own lives, we will mess this up. And I don't mean to to say that to make you feel guilty or bad or or anything. I, I, I think the scripture shows us that. And why it shows us that is it helps us to see how desperately you and I need God in our lives. How desperately you and I don't need more of us. We need less of us and we need more of Christ more of Jesus, more of God. We need God to intervene in our lives and do what we cannot do in our own strength. What we will fail to do every time, we need God to enter in and do for us what we cannot do. The people of God in the book of Judges have been on one crazy ride. There were ups and downs And the narrator of this crazy ride shows us the destination in these three chapters. And the destination that the Israelites ended up in is devastating. Devastating. They had become their own worst enemy and fought one another and lessened the impact God meant for them to have in the world. God had saved the people, his own people, his own promised people. He had allowed them to be in exile for 400 years in Egypt, and he rescued them out of that. It took them 40 years to get to the destination he had for them right away, but they failed, and he allowed them to come in. And then another uh, period of time, as Joshua was leading them, they almost got into the promised land the way that they should, but Joshua died, and here the people were, left to their own properties and their own sections for their own tribes. And they failed to conquer. They failed to impose uh, the, the rule and law of God in those places. They failed to let God shine and show out in those places. And the downward spiral started right away as they became more and more like the Canaanites that they were meant to overthrow and less and less like their God. They had become their own worst enemy and in essence the people of God became worse worse than the Canaanite people that they were meant to influence and eradicate but never did and they allowed their influence to be far worse they they allowed the Canaanite influence and thus became far worse than the ones they went into that had no true God The people rescued by God went in and were infiltrated by the people that they were meant to go in and overthrow. And the people who had no God, who worshipped no God, who cared not about the one true God and worshipped whoever they wanted to and lived their lives the way they wanted to, ended up making the bigger difference in their lives. And what significance does this have for us in our day? It has all significance. It has great significance. 
You too, you and I, we, the church, we, the people of God, are meant to live according to God's ways. We're meant to walk in God's, uh, on God's path. We're meant to abide in Him and live with Him, not with this world and the riches of this world as our goal, but the riches of heaven as our goal, the riches of being in Christ one day in another land. We're merely exiles traversing here with another place, another land, another king in mind. But if while we are traveling this road, if, we, if while we are traveling in this land that we are meant to be exiles in for right now, if we allow the, the things, the, the, the agendas, the influence of the world we walk in to infiltrate our lives and make us more like this world, in this kingdom than the one that we are destined for, we too will end up in a similar situation. It has all significance for you and I. Look at, we're going to look at one verse today. Number one, it, sum, it summizes everything. Number two, there is so much here, and most of it is just leading up to a point. So through, through trying to tell the story, I hope that we get the whole point of the Scripture. And I encourage you to read it as well on your own. 19.1 In those days when there was no king in Israelite, in Israel, a Levite staying in a remote part of the hill country of Ephraim acquired a woman from Bethlehem in Judah as his concubine. This story is about this Levite. This story is about this secondary wife of his. This story is about their journey and the devastating end that it finds. And what we see off the bat, what we see right up top, is that we need God to be our king. Look at those words. And we've seen them. It's been the refrain all along. In fact, 19.1 and 21-21 bookend this whole story with the same words. In those days when there was no king in Israel. Now, people read this and may assume that the narrator of, of the book of Judges, who, who could be Samuel, that, that this person writing this uh, story and narrating this story is trying to get you to see that, uh, that they didn't have a king. And once they would have a king, they'd be all right, like an earthly king, like Saul or like David. And that's not the point of this passage. It's not the point of any time this phrase is uttered. What is meant for you and I to see and what is meant for the people reading the scripture in the day that it was wrote, written to see is that they had a king. The Lord God was their king, was their ruler, was their, was their uh, monarch. God Almighty was the one that they were uh, devoted to, covenanted to, servants under. But they didn't serve that king. They didn't even know that king. They didn't live their lives as, uh, as uh, papals under this monarch of God. They didn't serve him like they should. 
The narrator is not saying that they would have been better had they just had a human king. He's showing them that they didn't have, that they did have a divine king that they completely ignored. You see, these people, this group of followers of God, this, this, the people of God, the ones called out by him and put in a purpose and covenanted with him. They tried every possible situation except the one that would have worked the whole time. They needed to yield to God's control in their lives rather than their own control. They did things their way. They lived the, their lives the way they wanted to, the way that they saw the Canaanites around them living. That was more influential over their lives than the very God who saved them from the hands of servitude in the land of Egypt. And that idea of us try, people trying to do everything in every other situation by, on their own strength and by their own means is the same thing that you and I struggle with today. That's you and I. We're, we are lousy gods. We aren't sovereign. We aren't omniscient. We aren't all-powerful, and we are certainly not omnipresent. We are finite, limited beings. But this is the lie the people have believed since the garden. Take and eat of this fruit. The Lord doesn't want you to have it because you will be like him and he doesn't want you to be like him. If you will just eat of the tree of life, you will be like God. It's the lie that Satan repeats on uh, constant in our lives. To tell us that we can be like God, we can be our own God, and that we are capable of being our own king and ruler of our own lives. And that is the refrain the world yells at us, screams at us, screams at us every day. You can be like God. You can be a God. You can be in control. You can be, this is your kingdom. Think I'm lying? <laughs> I don't know if you have a problem with this or not, but I can't put it down most of the time because I have fear of missing out. And so I'm constantly, and it's, it's shameful to look. You can look at, at least on mine, like how many times you pick it up. You don't want to look at it. It'll embarrass you. But we, con we are constantly consuming content that tells us the same thing that the world is screaming at us. This is your life. Live it however you want. You can be your own God. You can be your own ruler. But we are lousy rulers. We need God who's perfect perfectly kind, perfectly omnipotent, perfectly loving and worthy. We need him to be our king. The second thing we see, and this really encompasses the rest of the chapter just about, we see that we need God to direct our paths. We need God to direct our paths. You see, the people in this chapter and in the following two chapters 
are unnamed characters. It's fascinating because in all of the other scripture, everyone is named. There is only one person named in all of these three chapters. His name is Phineas, and he's a descendant of Aaron. And the narrator is specifically letting us know his name because he wants us to see, just like we learned the name of uh, Jonathan, the Levite from the previous chapter, he wants us to see that the Canaanitization of the entire nation of Israel, and what I'm saying by that is that the, the, the full influence, the full, uh, they had become more like the Canaanites than God that had taken place throughout every line and branch of the Israelites, even all the way to the, uh, to the high priestly line of Aaron and even to the line of Moses and his family line. It had all been consumed with this other way of thinking, with this other lifestyle, this other way of living their lives. So in this chapter, everyone else is unnamed. And they try to forge their own paths. What you see is them saying, we're going to do the things we want to do the way we want to do them, and no one's going to tell us differently. And it begins with a Levite. And the Levite is significant because the Levite is the religious leader of the day. He's the one who knows the law of God the most. He's been put in a position the most to, to, to lead and to guide in the temple practice and the, the worship of God. And he is failing. Why? Because he had acquired a secondary wife, which he was not supposed to have. And the whole first part of the chapter is him trying to go find her because she decided to forge her own path and uh, to illegitimize her relationship with her husband, the Levite, this, who she was the concubine of, and had an, uh, an affair with another person and left. So you see this Levite who shouldn't have been in a relationship with this woman, this illegitimate relationship he was in, going after her to try to get her back because she had decided to be in an illegitimate relationship with someone else. They had forged their own paths against God's wishes and against God's ways. And their own paths led to destruction. This religious man goes looking for his illegitimate secondary wife and entered into his own, uh, who had entered into her own illegitimate relationship. And he stays with her father, but tires of his father-in-law and leaves at an odd time of night, decides not to stay in a foreign land and end up going to the land of his people. It would be more safe there. So he went to this place, Gibeah. The place that craziness happens for the rest of this chapter. Many scholars call this the outrage, these three chapters, the outrage in Gibeah. And it was supposed to be a place with the Israelites there, a, people, a place of his own people, a safe place. He had avoided two other foreign towns he didn't want to go to because they weren't safe. And he comes to this one goes to the city center and decides to stay there and a man comes and begs him you can't stay here. He too was a sojourner, but he had a home. And he says, come stay with me the night. You will be more safe there. But not safe enough because shortly thereafter, all the Gibeon men, these Gibeon men come pounding on the door and say, we know that you have guests. 
And we want to take them for our own. We want the man that has come to your house, and we want to forge our own path with him and do deviant things to him. And the Israelite men from this Israelite town want to forge their own deviant path and want and want uh, relent until this man is sexually assaulted by them. The story is akin to the depraved lands of Sodom and Gomorrah that the angel of the Lord allowed Lot and his family to be delivered from many hundred years before this. Except these were not foreign people who worshipped foreign gods like the Sodomites and the Gomorrahites. These were the people of God acting the way they shouldn't have been acting. You see how they forged their own path. The benevolent host offered his own virgin daughter and the man's secondary wife instead of the man. And the concubine, the Levite, went on a long journey to get back and to restore his relationship with, decides to send her out instead of himself. And she's abused. That's why I didn't read this passage, because it's grotesque the way she was abused. All night long, it says, and she came in stammering and made it to the front door of this man's home that was supposed to be a safe place. And she laid there for dead. Laid there for dead. The Levite goes, tells her to get up. When she doesn't, he picks her up, puts her on his donkey, and goes his own way to his own home with her murdered and dead. You see, that's the problem. That's the problem with this story. You have to read it multiple times to get this because it's just like, oh my goodness, what is happening here as you read it, as the the story unfolds. But what we see is that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They did their own thing. They did things their own way and it led to destruction. How's our day and age any different? And again, it would be easy for us as we read this passage of Scripture and think about the world we live in, and it would be very easy to blame them and say, look at them, look at how they're living, and it would be easy for us as Christians to say, let's just hole up in our own homes and in our own little holy huddles, and let's wait for Jesus to come back. But I will tell you, this mentality has even infiltrated churches. Don't believe me? Listen to a podcast called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill and the same kind of junk in these chapters of Judges was replete in not just one church but many churches that they look at and see what craziness was taking place and happening. Everyone, even Christians, forge their own paths and do whatever they want. Consider this quote from... Daniel, Bach, Daniel Block, a, a, a scholar, and I was reading in his commentary this week. He says, Human heroes in the book of Judges are few and far between. The same is true in the history of the church and especially in the contemporary American evangelical church. 
No book in the Old Testament offers the modern church as telling a mirror as this book. I like this passage. I like this quote because he used the mirror analogy that we've been using the entire time. I was like, see, I told you. From the jealousies of the Ephraimites to the religious pragmatism of the Danites, from the paganism of Gideon to the self-centeredness of Samson, and from the unmanliness of Barak to the violence against women by the men of Gibeah, all of the marks of Canaanite degeneracy are evident in the church and its leaders today. This book is a wake-up call for a church moribund in its own selfish pursuits instead of heeding the call of truly godly leaders and letting Jesus Christ be the Lord of the church everywhere, congregations and their leaders do what is right in their own eyes. Can I just say, not here? Not here. Not as long as I'm here. But, do you know when he wrote this? He could have wrote it yesterday, but he wrote it in 1999. If he saw that in the American Evangelical Church then, imagine what he would write about it today. We must allow God to direct our paths, not our own best thinking, because our thinking will lead us down paths that are leading to destruction. The final thing that we see is that we need God to fight our battles. Again, this is a grotesque passage of Scripture, but it is God's Word, and so we want to glean from it. But I, you read it yourself, and I'm going to try to summarize what happens without as much grotesque language. The Levite decides to slice up his murdered wife into 12 pieces and to mail it for their, I guess, you know, on horses or donkeys or whatever, I don't know to all the 12 tribes of Israel. Which begins an internal war among the Israelites. Because they're, they're mad at the Benjaminites who are living in Gibeah. They, I mean, they get excited. They get mad about it, thankfully. But the problem is, is they took everything into their own hands. And what we'll see in the following two weeks is how they took this, even this war and this battle into their own hands and did what was right in their own eyes and occasionally said, hey God, we're going to fight this battle, but which one of us should go first? Everyone was so used to taking everything into their own hands, this was destined to fail. And what we must see and must understand is that we cannot fight our own battles. We will fall. We can't fight them in our own strength. We need God to do it for us. We are so concerned for comfort in this life that we've forgotten that we are a people for a life to come. And may God prepare us for that. This is what I want to ask us to do in our remaining time. We're going to sing in just a moment. And I know things are crazy in the world. And I don't like it. I don't, I don't like it just like you don't. And I want us to do something about it.
And I think that there's ways that we can, and I hope we do. Just even today, on the anniversary of Katrina, 16 years ago, people are clamoring for their lives. And that's just one thing that's happening right now in our world. One tragedy, one difficulty. And I think it's meant to remind us in our own strength, there's nothing we can do to escape the groanings of our world, groaning for Jesus to come back and to make it whole again. But I know one thing we can do. Fall to our knees. Cry out, Jesus. We can't, but you can. We can't fix this. We can't make it better. We will fail. We will do things in our own strength that are right in our own eyes. But God, help us to be a people devoted to you. So as we sing today, maybe that's just what we need to do is bow before our Lord and say, Lord, we can't, but you can. As we sing, would you allow God to lead you however he's leading? Maybe it's to trust him as Savior. Maybe it's to become a Christian today. I would love to share with you how to follow him. You can text the word ALIVE to 423-455-9458 if you're at home. If you'd like to come up here, I'd love to share with you. If you need prayer, I'd love to pray with you. But may we bow before the Lord today and say, God, we need you. We need you. Would you stand? We're going to pray. Our team's going to come to lead us in one final song. God, help us. We need you, Lord. Work in our hearts and lives now, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray.